Hello and welcome to the third season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special people about food, what it means to them, and the role it has played in their life. We ask about food memories and favorite recipes, must-have ingredients, and the dishes that represent comfort, celebration, or adventure, and find out a lot more about our guests in the process. Hello, Alison, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you doing? I've got to say congratulations on last week's Guild of Food Writers win. Thank you very much. That really makes it sound like I've sort of forced you to say that, like I've written it into like your script or something. (laughs) But no, thank you. That's really sweet of you. It was the loveliest possible surprise. And uh, yeah, it's really, really nice. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we're going to be able to celebrate in some form because yet again, you have sent me a consignment of uh, delicious things to try. And this is a proper spread this time. You've kind of given me strict instructions to get things ready. What have you sent me? What are we going to be trying? I really wanted you to try these lamb shawamas from Waitrose. I know you and your wife, when you're busy, often get deliveries and takeaways. So I just thought this was better than one of them. It's faster. All the cooking has been done for you. You just have to put it in the oven to heat through for 25 minutes. Let me give it a go. You're absolutely right. Because I think, obviously, in my line of work, I try a lot of different things and you know, quite adventurous in terms of food, but you can't always match that adventure with the time needed or the uh, inclination. So uh, yeah, this is perfect. So a lamb shawarma is just a really slow cooked dish um, of lamb and it's heavily spiced. So you've got Mm. some amazing aromatic spices in there. You've got cardamom. The smell and that spicing is brilliant. I love shawarma is is fascinating because it's... um, I don't know, you see it quite a lot everywhere. You see it uh, used uh, for making vegetables. You see like cauliflower and celeriac shawarmas. But um, yeah, this looks great. So I've, I've got some hummus here. I've got some lettuce cups and some salad that you told me to get. Bit of flatbread. Yeah, let's give it a go. Depending on how you want to try it, you can eat it in like a in the flatbread as a sandwich okay. or just have right. it as a meze sharing. Mm. Oh my God. Really, really good. Just the oh, lamb wow. just melts in your mouth, and yet yes. it's just packed full of all those lovely spices. Yeah, yeah. There's real sort of um, you can get the cinnamon, the fragrance, the sweetness, and you're right. It's kind of it's a bit like a magic trick, isn't it? That you can get that sort of slow cooked, falling apart, like spoonably yeah. soft texture. I love the fact that it's all the hard work's been done for you, mm. and you can just empty it into the tray, and twenty minutes later, it's or twenty five minutes yeah. later, it's all cooked and delicious, and all that slow cooking mm. has been done by other people. The meat is, you know, it's it's kind of shawarma is what we would possibly more recognise as a kebab, like a kind of yeah, style yeah. of cooking on a vertical spit. You go over to Mexico and it um, turns into like El Pastor, which is like brought over by Lebanese immigrants there. And so it's kind of all around the world, this way of cooking. And it's really replicated, not just the spicing that you recognize, but the texture, like the falling apart, tender. You've got little kind of um, different, uh, there's there's real textural interest. Yeah, Mm. yeah. There's kind of contrast there. Really love it. Oh my God. 
I'm going to have to pull myself away from it and get us down to business, basically. Um, we should probably get on with introducing our guest on this episode, who is the absolute human whirlwind that is Andy Oliver. Andy is probably best known as the host of The Great British Menu, and it was great to hear from her the significance she feels of being, you know, a person of colour, a woman of colour, and having that role, and how she agonised slightly over moving from being a judge on the show to being a presenter. I mean, I love talking to her and hearing she gave us a sneak peek from her kitchen about um, the new cookbook that she's been working on. She was in Antigua, and she ended up being there over Christmas and the January lockdown. And so she spent time with family, really understanding Antiguan cuisine and all their differences in Caribbean food. So I can't wait for that book to come out. I do think that that was a bit of an exclusive. I don't think she's spoken about it. So yeah, I think we should uh, pat ourselves on the back from that. But you're right, it was really great to speak to someone in their kitchen. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the first time we've properly done it. And she was, you know, pointing out things and it was triggering her memories about yeah. food. And she's so great on the links between food and music. Both those things have been a huge part of her career. She was a musician in the band Rip Rig and Panic. And obviously she's been a food writer and broadcaster for a long time. Mm -hmm. She talked really movingly about food and how it helped her through the time when her brother, Sean, died tragically young and just how food kind of pulled her through and sharing food with people and just the power of of kind of mealtimes and family and community to do that and food being the glue that knits all that together. And uh, she was, she's a punk as well, apparently, which I didn't really know. She was great on, on the importance of like the punk movement and the, the awakening and, and how, um, how important it was for her kind of growing up as a, a young black woman in uh, Suffolk and, you know, yeah. the only, the only person that looked like her for miles and miles. She was a riot. She was lots of fun. So let's stop talking about it and let people enjoy listening to it. Here is our conversation with Andy Oliver. Andy Oliver, welcome to Life on a Plate. Hello, lovely people. How are you? We're great. Yeah, all the better. Now you are here. I'm right. I'm right now. I've got back up off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about it, but Andy set our hearts racing because just as we were preparing to record, she kind of. We thought we'd lost we her. We thought we'd lost her. She kind of fell with the most dramatic fall ever, and I genuinely was was worried. But she's absolutely fine. That's the good news. It was a bit slow motion, wasn't it? It's because I fell over my shoe, because I've got these flip-flops on. I fell over them and the headphone wire and the stool. <laughs> so it was a very complicated thing. But from my point of view, it was the best bit of slapstick going, just to start. <laughs> That's why I did it really, yes. just to, yeah, just yeah. to amuse you. Just as a sort of physical icebreaker. But anyway, never mind your fall, we want to talk about uh, your rise, uh, to be honest. And um, you seem to me, obviously, you've had such a varied and rich career as a restaurateur, as a broadcaster, as a musician. It feels at the moment like with your hosting role on The Great British Menu and how successful that's been and how much people have responded to your personality and your character and your appearing on 
front covers. It feels like having had that variety of things that you've done, like now your popularity has never been higher and it's surging. What's that like from your point of view? No one is more surprised than me, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what is going on? At one point, about a month ago, I was on TV twice a day for four days a week and I felt like I had to apologise to people. (laughs) I'm really sorry to be bugging you all constantly on the TV. I don't even know what's happening, but it's... uh, it's it's joyful for me and it's I, I I wasn't sure about taking on the new role on on GBM I was a bit a trep- I had a little bit of trepidation about it because mm. why why was that Well for a start I love sitting in between Oliver and Matthew it's one of the most hilarious days of the week sit a couple of hours in between Oliver and Matthew arguing arguing with them about food is just a lot of fun it really yeah. really is because I was a judge initially I was a judge initially for the first couple of years and then Patrick Holland at BBC uh, called me up and said, would I do it? And I said, no. No, actually, they asked me to do it and I said no. And then Patrick called me. Patrick Holland runs BBC Two. And said, please. And I said, well, and I also, not just what I was worried about missing the boys, but I also thought, actually... I'm not a comedian, and I, you know, before Susan had done it, she's very, very funny. Susan Cummins, she's very, very funny. So I was a bit like, mm, I'm not really good at being funny to order. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like I, I like to have a laugh yeah. with people, but I'm not like jokey, jokey. And um, and then I also was concerned that I didn't want to lose any sense of authority because I also think it's important that there is a a, a woman of colour yes. on TV in the food industry uh, with authority. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's a really important position to hold and I take it very seriously. I just think that, you know, our industry, I love our industry, but it's incredibly white and it's incredibly male-driven. So, uh, you know, and, and also age-wise, I'm 58 years old, I just turned 58. So a, a woman of my age, uh, of colour, in a position of authority in our industry, I just thought it's really, really important that I didn't lose that position. So I was concerned about that I was concerned about that but actually what I realized and what Patrick said to me is like no I just want you to expand your role I want you to to broaden mm. it out I want you to connect more with the chefs and do yeah. more things so I was like okay when you put when, if you put it like that <laughs> I'll do it so <laughs> so I said yes and I'm really really glad that I did because I I en- I enjoyed the Christmas series and the last series so, mm. so much. Engaging with all of the chefs on their entire journey with the dish, the evolution of each dish, seeing... I mean, they work so incredibly hard. And these are people at the top of their game, you know what I mean? They all are. Well, you know, food is clearly the thing that has been a constant throughout your life and anchored, you know, so much of what you've done. So we wanted to kind of take you back a little bit as well and in terms of where that was born, where that kind of came from. Can you ever remember a time where you weren't completely invested and interested in food? No, not really. Not really. It's funny because somebody asked me this yesterday and I said, you've got to... I started cooking stuff, at, you know, at home, obviously, with my mum and dad, but I was really little. I was about five or six or something and I started making the cauliflower cheese every Sunday for Sunday roast you know standing on a stool making the cauliflower cheese so one of the first things I ever learned to make was a white sauce and and then I learned how to cook rice very early mm. and you know just the basic things yeah. that were in our household I, I at school I got in trouble at school when I was about <laughs> um 11 because the the uh, home ec teacher tried to teach us to cook rice and she did that weird stuff you know that weird stuff where people boil it like pasta and then they drain it? 
Oh, and then right. they did, and, I, and, and, I, and I was going, I, and I went, that's not how you cook rice. <laughs> she went, it's how you cook rice. I was like, no, it isn't. She went, I got sent out of the class for being rude. I was like, I'm not being rude, but I'm telling you right Just now, that is incorrect, lady. That is weird, and that's why your rice looks all sloppy and weird. Um, and uh, so, so, uh, it, and, and then I think I realised very early on. My father was a real sort of bon vivant, you know. He was a terrible father, but he loved a party. <laughs> and yes. uh, he was really good at, at having parties. And I realised, and he was a brilliant cook, mm. and I realised very early on the power of food to connect mm. people mm. and mm. to bring joy and happiness and actually to dispel uh, a, a sort of mood that mm. you don't necessarily want. You know, if you start cooking, you put on some tunes. Music and food are irrevocably linked yeah, to me yeah. as well. It's like, put on some, put on some sound get some get in the kitchen and life's all right generally i find you know what i mean what kind of food was your your dad cooking for those parties he was cooking mainly caribbean food he would do quite a lot of kind of old school caribbean things like a south like south like pickled pickled bits of pork Mm. shall we say (laughs) (laughs) interesting bits like tails and nose and ears you know it's kind of interesting me when people talk about nail to nose to tail eating like it's just been invented i'm like mate have you ever been to a black household (laughs) everybody everybody because people you know and it's it's basically poor people People's food. Yeah. You know, people yeah. had to eat a whole lamb. People can afford to leave yeah. bits mm. out for other. You had to cook all of it because that was what you had to get you through. You pickled it and you stewed it and you canned it and you did everything yeah. with it because yeah. you needed to make it last. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you and you you seem it seems just looking at your background as well that because of your father and your mother's work, uh, which was. Uh, with the RAF, right? You were what they'd call an army brat in the kind of American lexicon. I'm an army brat, an army brat and a latchkey kid. <laughs> yes. Oh. Do you remember that latchkey <laughs> yes, kid? Yes, yes. So for the uninitiated, explain what a latchkey kid is because I was a bit of a latchkey kid as well. It just meant your mum your mom and dad or whoever it is that looked after you, your mum or your dad or your aunt, your, your granny, whoever you lived with, was at work. So you had to let yourself in when you came home from school and make your own tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all it meant. That's yeah. all it meant. Um, but it's interesting to me that that has become a little bit demonised these days, and and there's a lot of guilt around. You know, I've noticed a lot of young. Uh, parents have a lot of guilt about not being home uh, or not being able to be home when their kids are coming home from school all day. But I never, I, it didn't, I, I never minded my mum being at work. I never minded my dad being at work. To me, that's just what happened. It was like people had to go to, uh, if you don't go to work, how are you going to pay to live in the house? It doesn't, it doesn't, make, doesn't make any sense to <laughs> yeah, me to feel yeah. guilty about earning money to sustain your family. I just think that the idea that you're able to stay home is an incredibly, uh, you know, it's, I, I hate to use the word privilege because it's boring. Everybody goes on about privilege all the time. But it, it really, it's quite a kind of rarefied notion to me, the idea that you, you can stay home and just be home the whole time with your kids because cause you, cause it's nice for everyone. It's like, oh, blimey, you've got loads of money, haven't you? You say you went home and had to start cooking dinner. I mean, your parents had taught you how to make cauliflower cheese with good white sauce and cooked rice. What 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 were you cooking? So look, look, look my, my brother was loved a pie. 
My brother loved a pie. He was very into pie. So we, I used to make pies, uh, mashed potato, good gravy. I learned to make good gravy early on. I'm a very big fan of gravy. There was always good food at our house. And, my, you know, we moved around. We lived in Cyprus for a bit. And um, uh, we got quite a lot of cooking ideas and thoughts from that part of the world as well. That was when I really started to love food, actually. It was inside, you know, consciously think, wow, this is really interesting to me, you know, and I was about six or seven. You know, you have me, you funny little moments that you recall when you're little. And I just remember those moments in Cyprus. There was a, there was a man who had a food truck by where my mum worked and he used to do Lucania sausages. You know, they're like kind of Greek megas, aren't they? Greek Cypriot megas. And he used to do those with, um, now it wasn't halloumi because it was more that sort of melty fry, the, the softer, the softer Lovely. one. Can't remember what it's called, but that she's in a hot, br- fresh bread. And Lovely. so we'd be like, oh, let's go and pick up mum from work because they <laughs> get these amazing hot sausages in this bread. And that taste, I always remember. So the contrast then. Very St Edmunds in the 70s. You've talked a little bit about, you know, in the past about some of the challenges and things that you faced, but also about, you know, the the really firm friends that you had then. How would you characterise those early years of your life? It was, I found it very difficult coming back. It was the 70s. It was, you know, I, I often describe it as before... Um, anybody turned the lights on in Britain it was a bit everything was a bit black and white and grey it was that time it was just like you know there was a lot of corrugated iron everywhere wasn't there <laughs> it was a bit it was a bit weird and and it was it was quite racist it was Suffolk it was the 70s so there were people calling us names and there were some really you know unsavoury things happened that I found very confusing really upsetting and 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 uh, I retreated a bit of me definitely recoiled Mm. from the world and retreated into myself um i used to read a lot anyway but that books really became my sort of savior i would you know but i had two incredibly i had a lot of mates as well and i had two particularly good friends who are still sue and louise who are still two of my dearest friends in the whole world and and i and i do think that something about surviving overt nastiness and bigotry, the, the gift that you get from that is uh, that you learn to be kind as a person. You learn not to be that bigot or you become a terrible bigot. So <laughs> you were going the way, right? But for me, it taught me not to do that to people. It taught me to find out who somebody is and it taught me not to judge and decide and and make and make sort of strange uh blanket assumptions about another human being just because of their color or their sexuality or their their the fact that they're different to me it actually taught me to enjoy difference and to celebrate it and to yearn i mean i love the fact that we're all so different Mm. i think that's what that's what makes the world go round yeah well that love of of difference and that embracing 
understanding of people that have come from all different walks of life seems like something you were particular that you found when you moved to London. Like you moved there at seventeen, which seems crazily young. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't wait to get. I couldn't wait to get out of Bruce. I was like, oh, can I leave now? Right, I'm ready and I'm going. I left school when I was sixteen, and like within the year I was gone. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I barely took my O levels, and then I was gone. I didn't even get any. I've got, got my, like one O level, and then I was out of there basically. Um, but you know what did that to me? That was before I left. It was punk rock. Punk, punk was the yeah. biggest gift I could have gotten. The Clash and the Slits came to Bury St Edmunds and did a gig when I was six, 15, 16 that literally changed my life. Ari Up, who was the lead singer of the Slits, if anybody's listening and don't know what I'm talking about, punk rock, 1970s, there was a band of women, young women called the Slits, who were literally one of the best things that has ever been on this planet. They were just unbelievable, just pure fire energy <laughs> and Ari came on Tessa came on Viv came on Polly came on. it came on the stage and I just went oh my god that's it it's over I'm not doing anything else I'm only doing that and that's all I'm doing and they had a song called Typical Girls and we went back to school going yeah Typical Girls you're all Typical Girls and it lit a fire yeah, in my belly oh, like literally and, and, you know, beautifully later on, they became family to me, mm. actually. T- Tessa, the bass player, sits is my sister-in-law. She's yeah. my niece's mother and oh, stuff. So, so it was like, wow. it was like they, they were my fate. They were my destiny. Those, those girls who then became my family and, um, and the Clash, again, were just amazing, you know. It just was, it was the young people with fire. And in my head and in my soul, I suspected that you didn't have to do everything other people told you, that there was another way and there were other choices you could make. And everybody kept telling me there wasn't, and I didn't believe them. And then the Clash and the Slits come on, and I was like, I knew it! I knew they were lying to me. I knew I could do whatever I liked. So as soon as I could get out there, I got out there and did whatever I liked. What was the reaction of your parents, not just to kind of just wanting to leave home and your kind of light bulb moment with punk and rebellion and this other world that was out there? Were they trying to keep you sensible? My dad was horrified, but he was, he'd was he already kind of left home by then anyway. But my parents were divorced by the time I was 16. Uh, happily for me, that wasn't traumatic for me because I used to fight all the time. And me and my brother were like, me and my brother used to sit there going, oh my God, why don't they just get divorced? <laughs> They clearly can't stand each other. Just, just move out, for God's sake. So then he left and we were like, phew. Um, and then, so, so, and then my, mom, my mum's a quite a maverick. She's quite a kind of, she's a teacher, but she's always had a very rebellious spirit, my mother. And she's always been, she's always taught me to follow my heart and to, and to listen and to trust my intellect and to, and to listen to the voices um, uh, that are, you know, your internal uh, instincts, not the voices in my head, but my, <laughs> the inter- the, my internal instincts. And, and, and so she was just like, go do your thing, go do you follow your road and Fantastic. I came and I moved in with my I had cousins in London which was helpful so I came and moved in with them and um and then very soon afterwards I joined Rip Rig and Panic which was the band that I was in with Nana uh when I was yeah you know, Nana Cherry of course yeah yeah punk isn't known for its uh culinary sensibility or uh, the food <laughs> that was going on it did you don't get the sense that it was a big a big part. No, it wasn't of... a lot of eating. It wasn't a lot of eating. No, we weren't really eating. Was your interest and passion for food, how did that kind of last throughout that time? And you and Nana clearly 
love well, food. Well, we just started cooking. We, yeah, well, you know, it's in, it was interesting because Nana grew up in the in the in the in the boondocks of southern Sweden, as well as New York. So we reckon, and she had gone through quite a similar experience to me. She was the only black girl in this weird little town. She got called loads of names. She felt a bit inadequate and all of that stuff. And we, her parents were fabulous hippie musician artist wonderful wonderful human beings and had taught her to listen to her heart and follow her spirit and she came to london and then we met each other and we just recognized each other and we recognized something each other almost immediately in fact not almost immediately immediately and we started singing together about three weeks after we'd met i joined the band she was already in the band and um yeah. and and we started cooking together yeah. almost immediately Fantastic. we used to do dance routines because <laughs> we were still kids basically we were talking about this the other day to our kids and saying it's so funny we used to make she was married she was she got married quite young to the drummer in the band bruce who's our dear friend and we used to we used to make you know like t- teenagers you know kids make your pa- make your parents watch you do a dance routine we used to make bruce yeah. watch we go what's this <laughs> we do some like weird dancing he'd sit and, li- and he's from he's from america and be like that's great guys what's to do you know what I mean? and uh, and we would we would cook these huge feasts and also we didn't have much money but we always always wanted to bring people together so you know we would have these big parties as these young people as people do and you know then there was people had space because you didn't you could afford to have a, a, a co-op house or a squat or whatever yeah. so you'd have these big houses you know what I mean you didn't you know young people it was much easier to be young and poor in London in those days so we would have these big parties and Nana and I would get like, you know, 50 mackerel and, 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 and roast them all or make <laughs> loads of chicken and rice and sad potato salad and do all these things, which was retrospectively quite odd. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but quite unusual yes. for people that that age, cooking mackerel yes. and, you know... Honey-baked chicken, mackerel, rice and peas. You know, when... Um, uh, Fab Five Freddy and uh, those first hip hop guys used to come over. We used to make them dinner after the gigs. They used to come to, they used to come to Fab because they'd been on the road for ages. There was this guy called Futura who was a, a graphic artist, graph guy, and Fab Five Freddy and all of those boys. And they would, they, we'd see them after the gig, and they would come back to Nana's flat, and we'd make them chicken and rice. They would wait for the rice and peas to be cooked because they'd been on the road for ages, just eating like no one f- cooking, desperately missing their home and their mum and stuff they'd be like oh my god yeah, yeah. I've got yeah, visions of word it. getting out and all these tour buses pulling up at Nana's flat and they're not even on tour they're not even playing any shows they've just <laughs> heard about the rice they and chicken they come for the chicken and rice <laughs> honestly it used to make them so happy it was hilarious bless them bless yeah, them yeah completely and it just shows like the different worlds in which you've kind of crossed over with and that communal collective sense that you you seem to always have had of gathering people and keeping people together and using food, as you said right at the start, as yeah. a way, as a connector, as a way to sort of bridge those gaps. I think it's the sort of first or second human instinct, mm. isn't it? Mm. It's like, you know, we, mm. we could, music and food, breaking bread and the drum, I call it, because these are the, these are the two of the first things that anybody ever, that any humans ever did with each other, played each other music to communicate, right? And, and gave each other something to eat over some kind of fire or some kind of something or managed to catch something and, and share it with each other. You know, I think it goes back so, so far. It's, it's innate within us. It's an innate instinct. 
things and obviously I it's something that I'm particularly drawn to but I think it's instinctively within all of us actually. You mentioned your brother earlier and he was the one that brought you and Nana together because he was in the band initially and he so tragically died at a very young age from sickle cell anemia and that must have been at such yeah at such a young age that must have been so horrible it it broke me it broke me i was 25 he was 27 and it, it broke me it really yeah. did broke me it, it broke me i i it, it, i realized that i actually became quite ill after he died i just i developed a really serious eating disorder i drank a lot you know having a child actually helped me not completely disappear I think because I felt like I was disappearing it, it was such a difficult I was so young and it was so sudden and he just was gone you know we were and Nana and I all of us we were just destroyed by it it was so he was so at the heart of us you know my brother he was an amazing guy he was the most brilliant bass player um terrible cook terrible cook, <laughs> terrible cook. but a brilliant brilliant man and um I mean, obviously, really missed still. Luckily, he had he had two kids. He's got Theo and Phoebe, and they've both got children now. She's got three grandchildren, and I miss him every day still. Um, and and but I, I also I think the older I get as well, there's a certain so you get a bit more philosophical about the people you've lost and and the things that have happened in your life, don't you? And so the older I get, the more grateful I feel that I had him at all. Yeah, yeah, of course. That, of he, course. that we've that we even had him for twenty seven years. Years. I'm like, gosh, well, at least we got 27 years. We yeah, could, you know, it could yeah. have been shorter than that. So I, 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 there's, there is a certain amount of that that has crept in. Yeah. But I do also, it was, it took me a long time to get back onto a track of life that was kind of productive. Actually, do you know, the thing that started to really help me was I started, um, working at a place called the London Lighthouse, which used to be off Portobello Road. It was an HIV AIDS hospice. And they did a lot of palliative care there. And I started working there on a Friday on Women's Day. And I used to go in and I met all these incredible women who were living with HIV and AIDS. Some of them had children and, you know, they knew they were dying. And the courage of the people that I met there and the, the passion with which they lived their life reminded me to keep living reminded me to keep putting one foot in front of the other so there was something in again reaching out to other humans and connecting with other people in fact that's why I started broadcasting somebody there who also was a volunteer worked at GLR which was Greater London Radio and said will you will you come and do a uh, a part uh, like a show for to do to do a pilot do a nighttime show and I was like all right and, and then I ended up the next thing I knew I had a nighttime show on GLR and I was like oh my gosh <laughs> and I didn't know anything about broadcasting at all and then, then they were like this is how you drive a radio desk I was like are you sure are you, are you sure you want to put me in charge of that it looks very big and there's a lot of buttons on it I'm not sure it's a very good idea and they trusted you and they trusted me and like I told you before I did take all of the BBC off air for about two minutes but that's yeah I think you'll have to explain right, so, this a little bit so more so I was I was in the studio and at, at midnight what happens is um and for local BBC stations everything goes over to the world service so I, mm. so I was recording something and it was just before midnight and I was about to finish and I pushed the wrong button and I pushed the button that 
turns all other buttons off in the world, it, it turns <laughs> out. And everywhere, everybody's radios went dead completely instead of flipping over to the World Service. And my producer oh, no. was literally having a conniption through the window. And I was like, what? What? She was like, turn it back! And then I flipped it back up and it was both... It, Probably was about a minute, but it felt yeah. like hours afterwards. I was like, oh my God, I took the whole of the BBC down. I feel like they've probably like moved that button now and it's like, and it's like Andy's, Andy's rule or something or you're in some sort of guidebook. Don't do what Andy would do. Absolutely. Right at the top, we were talking about a GBM Great British Menu and you know the the real sensation you've been on that like you know you spend you go online and it's like you know you're you're almost like a meme like how much people love you and your looks and your fan but the thing that you said about the importance of someone like you being in that role and having that authority about food it'd just be really great to hear how you sort of navigate that journey as a broadcaster well do you know what i'm used to being the only black person in the room i've been the only black person in the room for quite a lot of my life or the only yeah, uh, or yeah. the only other something in the room for yeah, a lot yeah, of my life yeah. because um i think actually because i started broadcasting and broadcasting has been uh, you know hasn't had much diversity in a lot of the areas that i've been broadcasting and so i'm sort of used to it and um i don't i i don't even I, I never think about it consciously. I just get on with doing my job because if you sit there and think about consciously, then you're going to, you know, it's like if you see the only woman somewhere, if you sit there thinking, I'm the only woman, yeah, it's gonna, you're of just going to, yeah. there's no point. You've just got to get on with what you're there to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, me and my, my daughter, Makita, call it accidental politics. Do you know what I mean? Makita Oliver, of course, who's a broad, long-standing broadcaster. Long-standing broadcaster in her own right, since she was 15, my girl, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, we call it accidental politics. So just the very fact that you're in the room and you turned up and you're doing your job is a political statement in itself. Because people often say to me, oh, are you a... You don't do outwardly feminist things or you don't do outwardly um, uh, things that support... And I'm like, just by my life and living, that's a political act for me. That how I live my life and what I do with my life is my politics. Being being in the kitchen doing the food that I make and, and living the way that I do has always just been, that's how I see politics and life are intertwined. I don't think you need to necessarily have a stand on a stage and, and yell at people for to, to be politically active. But people seem to have really responded to your, to your honesty, even something like The Fan, which, you know, everyone was like, oh, we love your paper fans you're waving a fabulous one as we speak <laughs> you talked about the reason for for that fan and it's my menopause mm. yeah i get really hot flushes anthony horowitz apparently was i don't even remember this anthony horowitz who's a writer um was on the was one of our guest judges and he said um oh that's a marvelous affectation and i said it's my menopause anthony apparently i shouted at him i don't remember that <laughs> at all my producer was cracking up but it's like people it's, it's not an affectation yeah. i'm boiling yeah, i'm having yeah. a massive hot flush and you know menopause is people do talk about it but people don't talk about it enough and they don't talk about really what it does to you it's quite discombobulating and it can really throw you up you know like i'm talking to you now that's why the reason i said i start having a hot flush and it kind of comes internally and you're talking to somebody and it's like it's like a feeling of dread 
is the, is the best way I can describe it. And it rolls up your body. And then I get this thing where my skin starts tingling and then I get a hot flush. I wake up in the night with my heart palpitating, going really, really fast because it's trying to cool my body down. So I go around the country with a big, giant electric fan <laughs> that I take to hotels because I don't trust them to have a good enough fan. And if I wake up in the night and I'm hot and I can't open the window, I will have a panic attack. So keeping cool is, is yeah, it's top of my list. It's top of right off my list but it's a great example you know having you just being out there with your menopause fans and giving permission to other women kind of around the country to just if they need a fan to take it to just to admit it rather than just suffer in silence tell us about your cooking because i i look at you you're you, you're an expert in your field but yet you've had no formal training you kind of learned from your parents and where do you get your inspiration from where you come up with the most amazing flavor profiles oh thank you that's lovely i don't know you know i think <laughs> i think it's a bit of a bit of obsession Slightly, I you know I sort of wander about just obsessing about. I made a really lovely pineapple chutney this morning. I got up at six o'clock, and I and there was a pineapple looking a bit moody, and I thought oh, I don't know about that. So I just I made a chutney with, uh, and I had ginger. So I, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a kind of let's see what's in the house kind of person. So it's got ginger. I've got fresh turmeric, fresh ginger, some cumin seeds, some coriander seed. I had a box of Scotch bonnet, so it's got a Scotch bonnet in it. I put some rum in it. It's got some demerara sugar, um, and then I use a bit of apple cider vinegar and it's a re- it's actually come out very very well I have to say I'm quite pleased with it and a little bit of cinnamon it's got a little bit of cinnamon so I know and there was a mango as well that was about to go so I chucked that in there too so I'm a little bit of a kind of you know use what's there person I just had the most wonderful time because at Christmas I went to Antigua for supposedly six weeks and it ended up being three months because of lockdown which was incredible but it gave me time to write so I started writing a cookbook finally and I and I actually had time to really think about you know combinations and doing things with because I think there's a really interesting thing for me at the moment where uh, I'm really exploring the idea of food identity through food and 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 how it how it places us and how it positions us and i think that when you are from a migrant people from a diasporic community or a diasporic lineage whatever then that that your your historical food the traditional food becomes very very important to not just you but to everybody around you you know try try taking away try changing pasta and see what happens you know what i mean it's fantastic news that you are writing it down and setting these ideas and these kind of fascinating um, connections uh, around sort of different food and diaspora communities down. How much does that kind of funnel into the restaurants that you've run and the food businesses? Because you had Andy's in Stoke Newington in London. <laughs> yes, that's right. And then right, Wadadley right. Kitchen. Yeah, um, and then we did One Love last year. And yeah, now we're with, doing with a new Fred plate. from First with, Dates. With Fred, that was hilarious. We had <laughs> such a laugh. And now we're doing, uh, we're opening another Wadadley Roadside, we're calling it, in uh, in Hackney Wick in a, about about six or six weeks or so. In the middle of the summer, we're going to be opening up there. And that is going to be um, roadside. We're calling it with Daddy Roadside because often the best food you get is by the side of the road, right? So we're doing with Daddy Roadside and we're doing spit roast, um, like uh, spice rub chicken. We're doing this really great thing where we are 
confeeing all the root vegetables and then uh, putting them on the spit and then roasting oh, them and then we're glazing mm. them with all this wow. like molasses and lovely spices and stuff and then we'll slice that down and we'll have, you get that with like bus up shop roti or um, the cocoa bread and then we're all upstairs we're going to be doing Caribbean seafood boil and we're doing uh, like coconut spice butter and bus up shop it's going to go on the table wow. bibs you have to wear bibs I love I love I've always wanted to have a restaurant where people have to wear <laughs> because I just think, get messy. Let's just let go. Now, there's a question that I always ask everyone. No one escapes without answering it. Is there an ingredient that you always have in your store cup that the Oliver household falls apart with when it's not in the house? Garlic. I love garlic. I put, I'm, I'm garlic. I'm a garlic. I'm a garlic. I'm the queen of garlic. I've got wild garlic oil. I've got wild garlic in the freezer. I've got a fresh garlic in one side of the kitchen. I've got dried garlic and I've got black garlic paste in the fridge. I love garlic. I just love the kind of rooted kind of sexiness of garlic. It's it, yeah, I love it in everything. I mean, I think I possibly over garlic some things <laughs> because I will go in deep with the garlic. I go in big with the garlic. I love it. And it's it's in in all of my, um, I start most yeah. things off with like garlic and onions. Now, um, kitchen grill, quick fire questions, but feel free to elaborate. Tea or coffee? Tea all the time. I, I, I love coffee. I'm, I can't drink it. It makes me really, really ill, unfortunately. And I only discovered it a few years ago. And I was like, wow, this stuff's fantastic. And I started drinking loads of it. And then it made me really, like, bad. I was in quite a lot of pain, really ill. And, and with tea, I, I, I drink herbal tea. At the, minute, at the moment, I'm drinking vanilla Ruibos. I'm really into it. And I drink it with a little bit of oat milk in it, and it's delicious. I don't like, you know, builder's tea. And I actually had to teach myself to drink hot drinks. I never used to drink any hot drinks at all. I never even used to have soup because I was like, it's so boring <laughs> because every spoon is exactly the same. I'm like, is this still going on? This is boring me to tears. Oh my God. <laughs> Porridge or cereal? Porridge. I love porridge of all kinds. Cereal, very occasionally. Do you know what? I like cereal out the box. <laughs> dry. <laughs> Just dry. Like a, a, handful, a handful of Rice Krispies. Quite nice, actually. It's a little yeah. snack, isn't it? <laughs> uh, what about fruit or vegetables? Oh, that's hard. Sorry. You can't maybe choose between fruit and vegetables. That's not fair. That's just mean, Alison. Yeah, isn't I know. It? That's Sorry. Um, okay. I guess, I guess, I guess... Vegetables. Ah! Vegetables. I say that looking at a mango, and I love my mango. And, and yeah, but, uh, oh God, I guess I'm going to have to go with vegetables. I don't okay. know. Shall I move on quickly so you don't have to think about that one for too long? Uh, yeah. What, what about yes, mashed? That, hurt, that obviously that hurts. hurts my feelings. That hurts. What about mash or chips? Uh, oh, again, very, very tricky. I guess mash. Mash. I guess mash because the mash will soak up the gravy. Oh yeah, I mean, a chip will soak. <laughs> so a chip will soak up the gravy. I do do curry goat and chips. Oh, chocolate curry goat. We finish the curry goat with raw chocolate, and then we serve it on like chips that have been uh, marinated in turmeric oil, so they're really golden and delicious. And then you put chocolate curry goat on top of that. So that is a thing. So I'm changing my mind. Actually, I'm lying. Chips. It's chips. Okay. It's chips. Stop Sometimes. <laughs> Today, today it's chips. Today it's chips. Tomorrow it might be something else. You make me feel really naughty, Alison. I don't know why. 
the next one's, the next one's going to make you. I love that this was allegedly a quick <laughs> fire round. I'm sorry. Starter or pudding? Starter, starter, okay. starter. I don't have a very sweet tooth. That's helpful. I don't really care about dessert. You know, I don't care about chocolate and stuff like that. Can't be bothered. It's like take it or leave it. But you know, you know, get me some delicious bit of beautiful carpaccio or something else beautiful in the, at the beginning of a meal, and I'm very happy. What about fried or poached? Well, it depends what it is. That's 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 that is an impossible one <laughs> because so uh, I mean so if I think of an egg it depends on the day I mean these are impossible questions how are people supposed to answer this all right I'm gonna go with poached poached oh I thought you might have said fried what about parsley or coriander parsley. I think parsley's just, I think parsley's more versatile, actually. And there was a moment, mm. do you remember when everybody discovered coriander? And it was like, <laughs> guys, 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 you're not meant to put it in everything and you're not meant to use so much of it either. <laughs> what about butter or olive oil? Butter! Good! <laughs> full, full, good, salty, delicious, wonderful, glorious Irish yeah. butter. I'm going to live in it, <laughs> roll about in it. Cut a slice of it. <laughs> and I think this is a really easy question. Recipe or freestyle? Freestyle. I mean, and, and, I mean, that's what recipes are for. Recipes are a starting point. Recipes aren't a template. You don't need to do it exactly. Recipes, you think that's a nice idea, but I'd like to do it a bit like this. That's how I hope people use my recipes, and that's what I want to encourage. Yeah. Is because what, what you want to encourage with the recipe is confidence in the yeah. kitchen, because you want everybody to feel confident enough to cook it their way. You don't have to cook it exactly as yeah, you cook yeah, it. Yeah. You just, you know, their way or, or using the ingredients. They've got to have the confidence of. Going, I haven't got this, but I've got that, and that's similar enough. Exactly. Brilliant. And then how about high-tech or wooden spoon? Wooden spoon. Every day, all day, <laughs> every day. I don't... I, you know what? Can I tell you something? I've never used a sous vide in my life. I've never, I've never had one. I've never used one. I mean, that's not like some sort of pompous thing. I just haven't ever... It's just never come up. Do you know what? I've that, never had yeah, one in my kids. Yeah, yeah. It's never come up. I, I, I mean, I, I, get the, I get the usefulness of them in a, big, in a big kitchen when you've got to get, you know, 50 loins of lamb ready or 120 or something like that. You've got to get them all exactly the same and then you can just reverse sear them and you can finish it and all of that. It makes total sense but texturally what it does to food is not always fantastic it you know yeah, especially yeah. fish stop putting it in a bag <laughs> i can't bear it i literally i'm just oh my god it makes it all mushy <laughs> Andy Oliver, thank you so much. That has been an absolute riot. You have just rocked our world. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Oh, it's been lovely. You're really, really welcome. It's been great. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Flamarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Andy Oliver. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcasts.